like you to um, turn, actually, in your bulletin or in your Bible to read God's Word this morning. And I'm going to be reading, from, it's on here. I'm going to be reading from John 1, 43 to 51. If you have it in your Bibles or your phone, feel free to follow along. John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come on, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. So one of the things uh, that makes Christianity kind of unique as a religion is that it focuses on a person. It focuses on this, this individual, Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is not that the founder of Christianity is a person. I mean, the founder of many religions is a person. Siddhartha is the founder of Buddhism. Muhammad is the founder of Islam and so on. What I mean by that is that at the heart of the Christian faith, the thing that, that is at the center of the Christian faith is this person, Jesus Christ. So in order to be a Christian or to be a follower of Jesus means that you know Jesus, it means that you, you love Jesus, that you follow Jesus. And it's the only religion that puts this kind of emphasis on a specific relationship with a specific person. Many, many religions have tenets, they have teachings, they have wisdom, they have practices, they have rules. Christianity is similar in that way. We just went through a practice of Christianity when we had the baptism. But, but what makes Christianity different is, is that it's the only religion that says all of those things are not what's most important in the religion. All of those things actually flow out of the heart of the religion, which is a relationship with this character, with this individual, with this person, Jesus Christ. And that, of course, leads to the question, if you have any interest in Christianity, it would lead to the question for this winter, is we're going to look at the Gospel of John, and we're going to see a number of encounters that Jesus has with different people. They're unique and, and they're different depending on who Jesus is, is encountering. And we're going to hopefully learn some things about who Jesus is and maybe discover him, perhaps for the first time for some of us and certainly uh, for the umpteenth time for many others. 
And what we're going to do is this morning, we're, are, are we still in the morning? No, we're in the afternoon now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this encounter here from John chapter 1 where Jesus has an encounter. You can see that in the back of the bulletin. That might be helpful for some of you, just so you know that it's, that it's there. I wanted to make you aware of it. So, so Jesus has an encounter here in John chapter 1 with a skeptic. Nathaniel is what you could call a skeptic. What's a skeptic? A skeptic is someone who questions the validity or authenticity of a claim to truth. So a skeptic is a doubter. A skeptic is someone who says, "Mm, I don't know if I buy that. And that's precisely who Nathaniel, sorry, is at the beginning of this passage. He's this skeptic who doesn't really buy what Philip is selling. But by the end, he's completely changed into what you could call a true believer. In verse 49 of the passage, he says to, to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So how did Nathaniel move from, eh, I doubt it, to you gotta be the one? How did he get from the one place to the second place. That's what we're going to try to figure out together. We're going to see three things. We're going to see Nathaniel's problem, we're going to see Nathaniel's deeper problem, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response to Nathaniel. So here we go. First of all, Nathaniel's problem. As I mentioned, Nathaniel was a skeptic, right? So the story is, is that Philip has had this encounter with Jesus, and then Philip goes to his friend, what we suspect is his friend anyway, Nathaniel, and he says, hey, uh, I want you to meet this guy that I, that I think might be the one we've all been waiting for. The people of Israel for many, many, many centuries had been waiting for this one specific person called the Messiah. This was a term used to describe the person who was going to save Israel, who was going to uh, throw off the Roman uh, oppressors and usher in this new great period in Israel's history where they would rise to greatness. And people had been looking for this character for a really, really long time. And Philip comes to Nathanael and he says, hey, I think we found the guy. We found the one that the Old Testament prophets and that Moses were all talking about. Come and see this guy. And Nathanael says this. This is verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's dismissive. He's skeptical, right? Like, it's, it's the proverbial eye roll, you know? Oh, yeah, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And why does he have this kind of eye-roll, skeptical kind of response? And, and at the very least, he had this response because Nathaniel was prejudiced, all right? Um, you know how there's town rivalries? I don't know, some of you maybe watched Parks and Rec, this, uh, this show. I think I've mentioned it before. There's the town of Pawnee, and then there's the town of Eagleton, the Pawneeans don't like the Eagletonians, and the Eagletonians don't like the Pawneeans. So there was this rivalry. Or if you're older, you maybe remember the Simpsons, and there was Springfield and Shelbyville, right? And, and that's not, you know, those kinds of things, when you see them in TV shows, they actually come from somewhere, and there's a little bit of that. Like, we're, we're I'm a Dundasian. I'm not a Hamiltonian. That's how, if you're not from Dundas, I hate to tell you, but people from Dundas, that's how they talk. 
<laughs> They're very, very proud of bringing from Dundas and not from Hamilton. And so there's this sort of prejudice that people have against different communities. And so here's, here's Nathaniel, and he's like, Nazareth, that dump? You've got to be kidding me. You actually think that this Messiah that we've all been waiting for could come from there, that little backwater country bumpkin kind of place? Give me a break. So that's one level of, of skepticism. But the, there's probably more to it than that. Nathaniel was also uh, kind of an intellectual snob. Nathaniel knew his Old Testament. He knew the Hebrew Bible. And he knew that the Old Testament said that this Messiah character was going to come from Bethlehem, not from Nazareth. And so he's kind of sneering at Philip. And Philip's like, hey, I think we found the guy. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And he sort of sneers and he goes, listen, I'm a smart guy. I know, I know how things are. I'm pretty educated. I know my Bible. It cannot possibly be that this Messiah comes from Nazareth. It's kind of an intellectual snobbery. And frankly, this actually lies behind a lot of the skepticism that we see kind of in our cultural today, so in our cultural situation today. So people, I get to talk to skeptics, people who don't believe in God and don't believe in Christianity with a, with a bit of regularity, and some of them are, are pretty well-educated people because we live in a pretty well-educated society, and they will say, you know, Christianity, it's so old-fashioned. It's, it's, it's from these olden days when people didn't understand the way the world worked, and it's kind of anti-intellectual. It ignores all kinds of things that science has taught us about the history of the world or about the way things work, that kind of thing, and they say it's simply cannot be that all these stories about Jesus and, and, and other characters in the New Testament, it simply cannot be that those things are true. And so they've predetermined that it can't be true, therefore it won't be true, and therefore they're unwilling to investigate it. And you know, study, psychological studies have shown that people are very seriously predisposed to a particular belief. And when they are predisposed to that particular belief, it is extremely hard to change their mind, even in the face of all kinds of evidence. Whether it's a religious belief or a political belief or a social belief or whatever. Now, if that's your situation when it comes to religion and Christianity here right now, I want to I encourage you not to do that. Try hard not to do that. And here's why. Maybe this has happened to some of you. You lose your keys. I have one car with only one set of keys. And I tell you, you I lose those set of keys and I am up the creek. And I've lost those keys before. And you freak out and you panic and you think really, really hard, where on earth could those keys be? So what do you do? You go through your mind and you say, where was I yesterday? Where was I today and this morning? And where was I yesterday? And you go to all the likely places hoping to find those keys, right? Now what if they're not there? You're stuck. And your choices are either keys are gone or you have got to be willing to start looking in the unlikely places. you got to start going to the places where you're like, there's no way they could be there. How in the world would they have gotten there? 
And I have had experiences where I have found my keys in the completely wackiest places imaginable. And you think, that's impossible. How did they get there? And yet, there they were. Here's my point. If you want to be wise, don't dismiss Christianity out of hand simply because it seems so impossible to you. You need to approach it, to be honest with you, with all due respect, with a little bit of intellectual humility. And if you struggle with intellectual humility, I encourage you to, 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 to do something about it. Here's, here's one of the things you can do. Listen to podcasts like Freakonomics Radio, Invisibilia, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. You know why? Because all of those are podcasts that are basically about taking conventional wisdom and showing why they're all messed up. And how, so for example, I, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I listened, to a, I listened to a revisionist history one called Pull the Goalie. You should listen to this one. And it's basically, it demonstrates that in hockey, when you're down by one goal and you're in the third period, uh, coaches will pull the goalie with about a minute and a half left, right? And it demonstrates through a whole bunch of really smart guys doing statistical analysis that you have the best chance of pulling it off if you pull the goalie over five, with over five minutes left in the game. Now, if any NHL coach started consistently pulling the goalie with five minutes left in the game, and, and then it says, if you're down by two goals, you should pull the goalie with over 11 minutes left in the game. Can you imagine that? That's insanity, right? So Mike Babcock starts doing that, and I tell you, within a month, that guy's fired. He's out of there because it's crazy, and yet, statistically, it is the best chance you have of actually winning that game going into the third period down by one goal. There you go. A little intellectual humility. Because there's tons of things that we don't understand and that we don't realize are different from what we think they are. Carl Sagan, okay, this guy was not a Christian, but he said this. It's on the front of your bulletin. He said, the truth may be puzzling. It may take some work to grapple with. It may be counterintuitive. It may contradict deeply held prejudices. It may not be consonant with what we desperately want to be true, but our preferences do not determine what's true. So, intellectual snobbery. Third one, though, is that uh, Nathaniel had an even deeper skepticism than just his intellectual snobbery. In verse 47, it's interesting, he meets Jesus and Jesus says to Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And what Jesus is saying is, is Nathaniel, you're the real deal. You're sincere, you're devout, you're plain spoken. You've been looking for me for a long time, haven't you? And it's true, Nathaniel had been looking for this Messiah character for a long time. And he had seen all kinds of pretenders come and go. Right? He's seen fakes. He had seen charlatans who had pretended to be what they weren't. They said they were the Messiah and they weren't. And he wanted to believe that this Messiah was coming, but the whole story was just too good to be true and he had gotten tired. And frankly, that's like a lot of people today. Their hopes have been dashed. 
they've kind of made an investigation about Christianity, kind of given it a try a little bit, and their life didn't change the way they expected it to change or the way they wanted it to change, and so they've given up on it. We live in a very cynical culture today. We, we have a hard time believing stories like the Gospels because they just sound too good to be true. Honestly, someone who came and, and made it possible for me to have a relationship with God and took away all my sin and I don't have to pay for them, like, like I get off sort of scot-free without all the, the, the consequences of them, is that really possible? Nah, that can't be. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know the bad things that I've done. And you're trying to tell me that there's someone out there who will love me even though I've done all those things and will forgive me even though I've done all those things? Listen, my family doesn't even know some of the things I've done. Uh, my wife, my parents, they don't know. And, and if I haven't done it, I haven't even, I, if, I, if I haven't done these things, I've thought these things. And if anybody knew those things about me, there's no way I would be accepted. And you're telling me that there's somebody out there, a God out there, who actually would love me even with all that stuff, knowing that stuff about me? They're cynical. And I get it. But this leads to the second point. See, Nathaniel, Nathaniel was cynical because he had a deep and profound longing that was unmet. But he's got this longing. He's this young, brilliant, devout Jew. He knows how things are supposed to be, and they're not the way they're supposed to be. He's supposed to be in this nation that God has blessed, one of the people that God had set his affection on, and life was supposed to be good, and, and it's not that way. And he's, he's trying to understand. He's in this identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. He, he asks himself, who am I? Who are my people? Why am I here? He needs an answer to these questions. And so finally he says, I think that maybe I should go to Nazareth. And you know, actually today, it's not that much different. Um, the, earlier this week, Brian Harskamp sent me a really fascinating article. I, I think it's from The Guardian, which is a, a British publication. And it was a woman writing about what's called her quarter-life crisis. Have any of you guys heard the phrase quarter-life crisis yet? Okay, well, you've heard it here second, some of you, many of you first. A quarter-life crisis is what a 20-something goes through, okay? And this woman describes the quarter-life crisis. She was successful, she was very well-educated. She came from pretty good money, and she had a fair amount of money herself. She had a good education, she had a good job, uh, she had a good home to live in. Life was pretty good. And yet, she describes how she's still in the middle of all that, having all that, she still feels sort of lost and unfulfilled. And she scrolls through all this social media garbage out there that creates this fear of missing out, right? Because all your friends are living the good life while you're just sitting there eating ice cream on the couch, binge-watching Netflix. And that leads to anxiety, and that leads to depression. And so she goes to a psychiatrist, and she's trying to, or not a psychiatrist, a psychologist, because this is talk therapy. And so she's, she's talking to the psychologist, and she's trying to, to, to figure out why she still feels this way when life is actually, on a lot of levels, pretty good. And listen to what she says. I know it's a bit of a long quote, but it's worthwhile. As I struggle to articulate to Arkel, that's the psychologist, the sense of disconnect I feel between where I thought I would be and where my life actually is, he suggests that the importance of religion, or lack of it, 
has a large part to play. One feature of religious belief is that your value is intrinsic rather than based upon performance or image, he explains. And as we move away from a religion-based society, young people are looking towards their careers to validate their sense of self. That's exactly what Jessica said in her testimony. Although I rarely think, now this is the woman again, although I rarely think about religion these days, I grew up being forced to go to church by my grandmother. She spent her childhood during the Second World War in a labor camp in Siberia, and for the rest of her life, she credited God and her Catholic faith for saving her and her family. As my sisters and I fidgeted and complained, she would hang on the priest's every word, taking comfort from the rambling sermons that, tried but failed to, that we tried but failed to understand. I hope I'm not rambling or under, not understandable, but, you know, it happens. Anyhow, she keeps going. We were children of peacetime, consumerism, and Tony Blair. There was no impetus for faith, no urgent need for salvation. When she died, my grandmother, in Charing Cross Hospital in 2012, she requested a priest to to be present to conduct the last rites. And then listen to this. Unwavering confidence in God had given her a lifelong purpose. And with her last breath, all those Sundays, all her whispered prayers were fulfilled. There's a lot I could say about your unfulfilled Sundays, wondering, you know, what's the point of all this? Don't remember, don't forget, you're going to die someday. Maybe that's the day those Sundays will be fulfilled. But here's my major point. This woman had been told, like so many young people today, just look inside yourself. Express your authentic inner self and you will be happy. Or... Look at what you see as success and chase it. And once you achieve it, you'll be happy. And they've done it. And it hasn't worked. And they're panicking and they're saying, is this as good as it gets? Is this all there is? Look at Nathan. Or sorry, Nathaniel. What does he do? He actually asks a tough question, okay? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I invite you. Ask the tough questions. Even be sarcastic in your question if you have to, because that's really what Nathaniel's being. He's being sarcastic. It's okay. Jesus does not expect you to believe instantly. He expects you to investigate. He expects you to learn. He expects you to wonder. As Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Basically, Philip is saying to Nathaniel, it's funny, okay? All you Christians out here, you're all worried about how to, how to share Jesus with your friends and neighbors and stuff, and you're afraid that you're going to say things wrong. Nathaniel comes up to Philip, and he says, he says can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's like, boy, that's not the reaction I wanted. No. He says, I don't know. Come. Let's find out. Let's investigate together. Let's figure this out. Let's study it. Let's, let's, try to, let's try to at least understand. I don't know. He doesn't say, how dare you question the Messiah? Anybody here, if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, you, you need to know this is a church where you can ask any question you want and not be afraid of it. Last point. How does Jesus handle this? Well, he handles it marvelously, okay? 
First of all, he, he gives Nathanael exactly what he needs. Remember, he says in verse 47, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So he says, Nathanael, I know you. You're unpretentious. You're transparent. You're a straight shooter. And Nathanael responds, interestingly, in verse 48, he says, How do you know me? Translation, yep, you nailed me. I'm blunt. And maybe, maybe he's also saying, yeah, people don't really like me, actually. <laughs> but here's the point. Jesus knew Nathaniel to the bottom, inside out, without even meeting him. And the only way that's possible is because he's not just a man. He's God. And he praises Nathaniel for who he is. He knows Nathaniel is skeptical, and he's not offended one bit. He gets it. Because he's God, he gets it. Because he's God, he has every right to crush Nathaniel for his insubordination, but instead, he doesn't. He invites Nathaniel to continue to ask. In verse 48, it says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, he gives Nathanael just what he needs. Now, what, what, what on the earth did that mean? Before, Nathaniel called, before Philip saw you, I, or <laughs> called you, I saw you under the fig tree. What on earth is he talking about? And there has been so much speculation by scholars on this, you have no idea. We don't actually know for sure what Jesus saw. What we do know is that it was so private, it was so intimate, it was so huge that Nathaniel freaks out. His eyes become big like saucers, and he's like, how did, how, how, uh, when did you, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, he came and saw, he asked his questions, and he was rewarded for his seeking, because the Bible promises that whenever you ask, humbly, honestly, willingly seeking, you will get your answer. Seek with an open heart, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Ask, and you'll get your answer. Nathaniel had this existential identity crisis, and Jesus says, I know your identity. We don't know exactly what happened under the fig tree, but Nathaniel's deepest longing was met. And maybe it was Jesus saying, look, Nathaniel, I've always loved you. I know you intimately, but I have always loved you. And that's the holy grail of relationships, right? To be known completely and yet loved absolutely. Think about that. To have somebody know you completely, they know everything about you, even the ugly stuff, but to love you absolutely, unwaveringly, unconditionally. Under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is telling Nathanael in that moment is, is there is so much more, Nathanael, to me than meets the eye. You think I performed some amazing little miracle in your life? That's just the tip of the iceberg, man. He's referring to a to a, a, a very old dream that a guy in the Old Testament named Jacob had where he pictured a stairway with angels going up and down between heaven and earth. 
And what it, what it symbolized for Jacob was, was that there was a way to connect with God. And, and, and he thought it was this place, but when his dream ended, then the vision was gone. And so this, this barrier between heaven and earth was back. So for the period of his dream, there was a way to get to God, but afterwards it was gone. And Jesus comes along and he says to Nathaniel, he says, I am that stairway to heaven. You see, you know why that barrier exists? It exists because of your sin, because of your rebellion. But I have come here to change that. By dying on the cross for our sin, the deepest longing that we have for the divine and for an identity in him is made possible because Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. He says, through me and me only, you can come into the presence of God. And God's presence can come flooding into you. Listen, if you're a skeptic here this morning, I encourage you to come and see. Talk to people who know Jesus and ask them why they follow Jesus. Because every Christian I know has said, I came looking for this, but he has exceeded my expectations. He's given me immeasurably more than all I could ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we pray that over the next few months as we come and see something of who Jesus is, you will help us to know him in ways that we've never known him before and help us to trust him, help us to love him, help us to walk in faith and obedience to him. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen.